Welcome to the Mental Advantage Podcast. Whether you're an athlete trying to perform at your best when it counts the most, a coach or business leader trying to get more out of your team, or someone looking for more personal growth, this is the place for you. This podcast is your map to guide you to the right mindset, systems, and strategies you need to become the best version of yourself. And now, here's John Cullen and Brandon Allen. All right, welcome to the show. So we have a great guest. Uh, RJ Hively is our guest, and he has been um, really kind of active in that mental performance ring uh, for a little while now. RJ's got a lot of great experience from his playing days. So RJ played baseball. He actually tells Brandon that story about um, how he started out at Cal State and then ended up at Ole Miss, though. And mm-hmm. so we get a chance to talk to him a little bit about Ole Miss and his playing days there. And then was drafted. Actually, he was drafted twice. He was drafted once in 2010 by the Yankees in the 26th round and then uh, later by the Arizona Diamondbacks in the 19th round in 2012. Had, uh, you know, Years there where he was playing, played low A, was in a low A all-star, made it to big league camp with the Diamondbacks in 2014, and then up to AAA in 2015, and then finally um, ended his career playing in Germany in 2018, which was pretty interesting. Talk to him about that. It was. It was. I tell you what, for for the listeners that really like the, one, the application, um, but two, kind of the behind the scenes um, to kind of hear what it's like in the grind. It was, it was really fun to, to talk with RJ about that because what, what I don't think a lot of folks understand is, is the, when it comes to the athletics piece, right? I mean, we all have pressures outside of our jobs, but there's something about professional sports that, it's certainly glamorized and, and everybody goes, well, it'd be great to, to do it. But you and I both know, um, and we, we know people that um, maybe didn't get a chance, just not because they weren't good enough, you know, but because of either circumstance or not being seen at the right time. And, um, you know, it's how do you cope with that, right? When When this was a passion, when this was like, the thing that you maybe felt you were called to do um, and you have these setbacks. And and what I really love about uh, the discussion with RJ is, well, that at some point that becomes just part of it. And it's, it's something that you manage like anything else. Um, You, I think you go through the different stages of grief. Um, I, I know I can speak through personal experience that, um, it absolutely sent me in a couple of different directions. Um, you know, um, it, it actually impacted my faith a little bit, right? Cause yeah, I was sure. Golly, like this was what I've just, I thought this is what I was supposed to do. And so it was, it was, it was really interesting to kind of hear his take. Um, because I, I agree with it a hundred percent. And, um, you know, sometimes you talk to people about it and they'll ask about your journey and stuff. And, and, um, sometimes it comes across as, oh, well, you're just saying that or whatever. 
Um, but, and you know it as well, like you suffered an injury that, right. That was catastrophic when it comes to yep. your playing career. Yeah. Um, so, so, and, and you, you just learn to deal with it. So uh, I think the listeners are going to really enjoy RJ. He great energy again. Like that seems to be just that common thread. Like these, these men and women have just this like passion for life and, and are, are really attacking things. So um, I'm excited for the listeners to hear it. And um, you know, it, it should be a good one. Absolutely. And uh, RJ is also, I should mention, the uh, host of his own podcast, JW5 Podcast, and actually uh, the founder of JW5, which is a high-performance coaching uh, group that he has in honor of one of his childhood friends, which was a really touching story that he shares with us. Great story. Yeah, JW5Pro.com. Yep. Definitely go out there and and check it out um, for sure. Absolutely. Well, enjoy the show and we will be back. And as always, make sure you're sending in that feedback and rating the show. As always, we'll talk to you next week. Well, Brandon, we have a great guest uh, on the show today. You know, one of the things that we've talked about over probably the last two or three shows has been this, this world of mental skills coaching, mental performance coaching is such a small kind of fraternity um, in the sense that sure. everybody is connected and we we've known RJ through like mental in, mental game enthusiasts Facebook page that you and I are, are both members of with Tyler Pazic and some of those folks and then RJ and I both went through that same MPM uh, Brian Kane you know performance uh, mastery program and I've uh, you know kind of from afar I've watched some of RJ stuff and was like hey we got to get him on the show so RJ thanks for for joining us we're happy to have you on the show man no I appreciate it thank you guys for taking the time and and honestly I feel honored you guys wanted me to come on and chat so thank you awesome well, we're we're really looking forward to it one of the things uh before we get started is in the intro uh the listeners heard where you played baseball at Ole Miss and is we this is my favorite time of the year right is when you have the the college baseball world series is just around the corner you got regional play i'm in nashville now i'm, I'm going to go try and see some of that vandy regional here this weekend and just nice. see some of the teams play um but i was thinking about this because we just had brett mccabe on the show recently who um great sports psychologist who actually played baseball at lsu and brett when he was at LSU played for Mike Bianco was one of the uh, assistant coaches there because right. of course Mike, you know, played for skip and then uh, stayed on there. I'm curious, um, you know, skip is one of those guys that notoriously has been ahead of the curve when it came to mental skills, coaching and, and kind of implementing some of that mental performance stuff in there. Is that something that you, you saw kind of from Mike, um, you know, coach during your time at Ole Miss, did, did any of that kind of trickle down to you guys? Oh, absolutely. I mean, all of his teaching, um, and what you know, we like to call kind of his playbook of coaching was revolved all around that, you know, being able to control what you can on that, being prepared for your moment whenever it came because you never knew. Um, and, and a lot of what our off-season training was built on was the mental toughness aspect, you know, when you're running, right? They're trying to break you down physically 
and see how much of the mental side will be able to kick in and be able to push you through that because your mind's going to go before your body will. It's an incredible feat of us as human beings that at some point, you know, your mind's going to go before your body will. And so being able to break you down and then build you back up more so mentally than physically on that really helps you when you get into those dog days, you know, uh, for right now for them, was it June now going into, you know, the end of the year, they've played roughly 60 games already. Um, Everyone's injured. Everyone's tired. That's Mm -hmm. when the mental side of this game really kicks in and then the adrenaline kicks in. So now how do you be able to control the adrenaline when you go out there for the first game of the regional or championship game of the regional and stay inside your skill set so you can perform and not let the moment get too big for you? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I see more and more colleges starting to get that part of that, you know, kind of embracing the uncomfortable, embracing the suck, uh, in their off-season workouts, I know when working with the University of Virginia, uh, coaching staff a lot with their baseball camps and all, I got to know some of the, what they did in the off-season, and they do the Iron Cavalier, which is kind of that same. It almost seems like it by the end of it, you're it's like a, um, I'd say like a t- combination of like a really intense tough mutter or one of those Spartan mm-hmm. races mixed with like some other things. Because again, it gets you to that point. And I think it not only builds that camaraderie, but it also lets you know as a player who you're in the foxhole with, right? Who who are the yes. guys that you're going to be going into these games with and you're going to be able to trust uh, to get through some of those tough times. The other thing about Ole Miss that I wanted to ask you um, – because I know being a relief pitcher that that you have to have some funny bullpen stories. Is there anything that stands out from your time at Ole Miss that that is appropriate for our listeners? It's probably the key. You know, I think one of the coolest moments. Um, I was going back and forth my last year, um, starting and relieving, doing a little bit of both. Um, and I believe we were playing LSU, and I think it was either Friday Friday night, um, and we had a bunch of freshmen in the bullpen. Right, they were just ready in case right, their name right. was called. Um, <laughs> and, and it was this is the epitome of Mike Bianco, and it's incredible how smart he is. He comes to me before the inning starts. I think it's you know bottom of the ninth. We're down by one, and he goes, "Hey, go down to the bullpen and get ready." He goes, um, "Matt Snyder is is going to hit a home run here and tie the game." He was up third that inning, and he goes, "And you're coming in." And I kind of looked at him, and I was like. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll go and be ready, right? So as I'm just playing catch in the bullpen and starting to loosen my body and loosen my arm, one out, two outs. And sure enough, first pitch, Snyder hits this epic. I mean, as soon as it left the bat, no one moved. Home run. Crowd goes crazy, and all the freshmen in the bullpen run over to the fence to cheer. And I'm like, hey, get out of the way. I got to warm up. <laughs> like, I hadn't really thrown off the mound yet. Like, I was only, you know, five, right. ten pitches away sure. from getting yeah. in. And now there's and, two outs. Right. And then they're looking at me, and they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, get out of the way. I got to warm up. And they're like, oh, sorry, sorry. So they went back, and we're, like, cheering at the back end of the bullpen. I think I threw – I mean, at that point, the adrenaline had kicked in, right, because right, right. I knew I was in the game you know, the electricity of the crowd. And, and if you guys have never been to Oxford for, you know, a, a weekend series or regional, um, I don't think words really do it justice. I could yeah. add any adjective I want there, but until you go and you feel and understand the energy, then you'll kind of look at me and be like, okay, we get okay. it now. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, think I, I came in, 
man, I think I went six or seven innings. I threw like a hundred pitches in relief. Oh wow! And at that's one point, incredible. Mike came to me and he's like, "Hey, you good?" And I was like, "No, like I'm exhausted." <laughs> and he goes, "Have right, you been I need watching? one more out of you?" And I was like, "All right, cool, let's go." That's awesome. <laughs> you know, it's funny because that is one of those things, and and that's definitely going to be. I'm r- going to write that down because Brandon and I can make that a point to just meet over in Oxford one weekend. But um, that right field beer shower and the whole thing that's going on, it it just looks electric on TV. Well, what's what's crazy though too is is and and I granted you know, this is probably going to sound, you know, old grandpa, but, but just the fact that like they, they trend constantly on like TikTok, and it's, it's the pitching staff. If, if I, if I have it right, it's not just yeah. the baseball team. It's like specific pitchers that are, you know, going out and, and doing and doing the videos and stuff. It's a, uh, and, and I've been to Oxford, um, you know, more on the football side and going through the Grove and, and all that. It's the, we, John, you and I had a nice place to go to school in Charleston. Yeah. Oxford's not a bad spot yeah. to go either. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me ask you this. Since you've been to the Grove, because yeah. I tell people this all the time, yeah, it's very hard to explain how incredible that is yeah. unless someone has been there. If yeah. someone's like, oh, I really want to go, how is it? And I go, I, I can't. I can Again, I can add any adjective in and you go, oh, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. And it's going to surpass anything that I say on that. No, there's no doubt. And, and, and again, it goes, it goes back to just um, Ole Miss fans are so, so most of my family went to Auburn. And so we still have season tickets there. So, and we'll travel, you know, on occasion, um, my son is playing now and so uh, plays football. And so it's hard some on some Fridays to go to the away game, but anyway, right. um, no, I mean, as far as SEC fans go and the environment, it doesn't get better. It really doesn't. I mean, because they're, they just want to party and have a good time and, and they're inviting. Um, there's some places that we go and it's, you know, I won't, I won't name names, Georgia, but, um, you know, where, where there are grown men. Oh, there goes our Athens coverage. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Barking, you know, barking at eight year olds, but, but yeah, it's just, it's one of those deals that, that it is, it is a great, great place to, um, um, to attend a game. And, um, um, yeah, it's, it's really cool. I think, and I I might have the title, I know I'm going to get this title screwed up, but I have it uh, recorded on my um, DVR, but they have a, uh, I don't know if it's called the season or something like that. It's like a documentary that follows Ole Miss uh, baseball, which is really fun. They have one on football too. They have it on football too. And what's crazy is it's, those are all, so there's a, there's a family we know, um, his, uh, their their son's playing at Ole Miss right now. He's a he's an offensive lineman guy named Jeremy Johnson, um, and we I actually saw them a couple of weekends ago, and they were explaining to me because there was one of those where he was kind of in it a lot, and they said, you know, that's all. Those are all Ole Miss students. They're all like it's part of. The, oh wow, it's a, it's a class. That's cool. It is. Yeah, that they yep. that they take. It's it's really neat. Really cool. It's basically awesome. like a, a student internship right? Um, that is obviously funded by Old Miss for what they do. And there's a couple of, of leaders, per se, of what goes on. But all mm-hmm. of the filming and everything taken that you see um, is done by students on that that want to get into like cinematography or, or filmography cool. or anything like that. It's really cool. 
That's really cool. Well, RJ, before we get into that kind of meat and potatoes of the whole thing, I can't believe I just used that expression. It might be the first time in my life I've ever said that. We but, edit. You wanna- uh, yeah, yeah. We'll probably have to take out meat and potatoes. Uh, Mac, note to self. Uh, but um, the other thing that stood out about your background I found really interesting was playing in Germany. What was that like? What's the uh, appetite for baseball over there in Germany? It was probably out of all my experiences, probably one of the coolest ones, you know, each each one kind of sets itself apart, right? College baseball is its own entity. Uh, Pro ball is a grind, but you know, awesome at the same time. Um, And then going to Germany, it was really awkward at first. I'm not going to lie. Cause all of a sudden it was like, I, I hop on a plane flight, the longest one I've ever taken in my life. And I land and I hope this guy that I've talked to for the last two months shows up and picks me up. Like <laughs> I kind of know what he looks. Yeah, I kind of like know what he looks like, but I'm not sure. And you know, then myself, my cell phone doesn't work because now you know I, I have right. you know the American card in, and I haven't switched that over yet. So I'm trying to find some type of internet just so I can be connected in case he tries to message me or you know anything like that. Um, <clears throat> but it, it's I think it's an incredible experience if anyone has the opportunity to do so. Um, I always tell people if I would have known how everything would have played out, um, I probably wouldn't have gone to indie ball, uh, to be honest, um, as fun as indie ball was and the relationships I made, again, I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, but there is a whole different world of baseball that allows you to travel and see the world and get paid for it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't think a lot of people know about that. You know, and in my mind, I was throwing hard still at the time when I got released. You know, I was 93, 97 at that time. So in my head, Dang. I was like, look, I'm going to go to Indie Ball. I'm going to get back and like, I'm right. going to make this dream come true. Now, obviously, that didn't work out. Um, but yeah, I, I had an opportunity to go over Germany. I think I spent mm, eight months over there. Uh, I went to nine different countries while I was over there. Um, I try to explain it to people that it's more of a competitive men's league right now. Mm-hmm. As, okay. as far as what you know the playing style is it's very competitive and it's good baseball right um but you have guys that have your your normal work days in the mornings and then come to practice in the afternoons uh we only play roughly friday through sunday on that you know most of the games are saturday sunday um we played in one big tournament that was almost a week long that they had to take work off from on that <laughs> get um, vacation Right. Absolutely. Um, and that was really cool. That was in Amsterdam, um, or just outside in Rotterdam. And my parents actually came out for that. So that was really cool cool to be able to see them while I was over there and hang out with them. And and they got to see me pitch over in Europe. And then we took like the train into Amsterdam and walked around and just to have those memories, like with my parents on that, I thought it was really incredible. Um, but I mean, it's awesome. I got a coach, which was awesome. Um, and then they, they have some funky rules. Um, they have import laws and things like that over there. Um, so if you don't have a European passport, you can only play in one game and, uh, that would be the import game. Um, and then the non import game, it, you can't pitch unless you have a European passport <laughs> and then you're allowed two position players to play. Wow. So, uh, we had a center fielder, um, who was awesome. He's, I don't know how he didn't play more in professional ball. Um, but he was from South Carolina. So he was, you know, he played every game on that. And then we had a, you know, an all around, you know, every position type guy from Australia. Um, and he played, so I couldn't play any positions and they wouldn't let me either again. Right. 
my whole right. career is just pitching, which was fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, I could only play and pitch in the import game on that. And so when we got to the championship, I could only pitch game two and four. I couldn't play in one, three, or five on that. Wow. It was really weird. It's just the way it is. And honestly, I I understand why they do it because um, they want to keep the game pure and help their own players be able to play more and get the reps um, and be able to you know hopefully move over to the United States and play professionally on that instead of, hey, well, we got 10 guys over from the United States or where else that you know we field our team with and now the, those german or european affiliates on that you know can't play yeah so i love no, that, what they do on that um but it was definitely new for me when i came over and they're like oh yeah you can't play today i was like wait what you wait, wait. No, that wasn't in my contract yeah <laughs> no, right. but I feel good. In, in germany yeah. is a is a great i mean beautiful country right i mean it's just a a unbelievable um the other thing you just said and and brandon and i've talked about this before and the three of us have played around a lot of great baseball players and seen some go on to the show. Some of them don't it. People would be amazed at how many great, great players that you see out there that just don't make it for whatever yeah. reason. I mean, so much of getting there being in the show is just, it's, I don't want to say luck because I don't believe that's the case, but it's, it's being in the right place at the right time. At least it's time. Absolutely. Uh, 100% unless you're, you know, the, the Bryce Harper's of the world, the Mike Trout's of the world, um, you know, coming up, I I got to face Byron Buxton uh, of Minnesota. Like you knew those guys were going to get there. You know, Chris Bryant, he got drafted and he came straight to double A and we got to see him within his first month of pro. Like you knew he was going to be there Mm -hmm. and and going to stay there and have a lot of success on that. Right. Um, That's the top 1% you hear about that make all the money, right? That are the big names that are the icons of the MLB. Everyone else is just a dude and they're really, really good. Really good. Yeah. But, you know, like for me, if you want to look at at where I was with the Diamondbacks, I was in a great position with them. They weren't very good on the major league level. If you did well in the minor leagues, they brought you up and they traded you. We want some more assets back for you. So for me coming in, that was a great, great um, organization to be with. And then about halfway through, it kind of flipped and they brought all these older guys in. So now Mm -hmm. they can be a little bit more competitive and just push everyone else back. Right. And you see that all the time. And absolutely, uh, one of my buddies uh, with the Diamondbacks, he's with the uh, White Sox right now. Again, great organization to be with two years ago. Right. And right. then they have two guys they called up that turn into absolute studs. Right. They signed two, you know, free agent pitchers, another uh, old Miss guy, Lance Lynn, on that, and all of a sudden they're contenders. And they go, hey, we need to fill in that back end of the bullpen. They go and they sign two guys. Now, all of a sudden, he's back in AAA. It's just like, man, you were in the perfect organization like a year ago. And now, almost for your career on that, it's like, hey, I'd rather go somewhere else so I could play, get up, get that experience. And, you know, we had a saying in the minor leagues, like the Diamondbacks paid my contract or or my salary on that, but I didn't play for the Diamondbacks. Mm -hmm. Right. Every time out was an audition for another team to mm-hmm. you know possibly get traded for free agency or you know, whatever it may be on that. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, I watch guys that probably shouldn't have been in the big league stuff wise, right. where it's like, hey, you're the only one that's fresh. We need you. And they right. come up yeah. and they, they get their dream fulfilled. They're up there for a week. Maybe that's right. all they get. And then you see other guys where it's like, yeah, you're going to be there. 
And then all of a sudden it's like, all right, not yet, not yet. And then an injury happens and maybe they don't come back just as good as they were previous. And all of a sudden they never make it. It's incredible. You know, the timing with everything that happens in, in pro ball, it has to align. You know, there were times where I I was like, I'm, I'm next. Like if someone goes down or if, you know, that game goes into extras, like I'm, I could be the next guy called up. And then all of a sudden it's someone else. You're like, okay, I can see what, you know, why they did that or why they're trying to protect their prospects right now. And they're not fully developed yet. And then all of a sudden it's like, Hey, that window was right there and now it's gone. And then you're just trying to search on how, you know, when it's going to happen again. Yeah. I I love that insight. And, and, and it's, it's one of those things, RJ, that, that I think from a listener perspective, um, most people don't understand that, right. They, they really don't understand that not only are you in a, a game that you you're going to fail a lot in game, but there are so many other mentally tough situations outside of the game where you're trying to navigate a career. Right. And, and it, and it can be very frustrating when you see someone advance or, and you go, hold on. Like, like you said, my stuff's more electric than that. Or, you know, oh, that it, sh- it kind of should have been me. And, and how do you kind of write the ship? So as, as kind of a segue, how did you use the mental game um, and, and some of the, the stuff that, that you learned um, to help navigate and get you as, as far um, as you got? Honestly, I'm not going to lie. I had a lot of bad thoughts, negative thoughts. Um, but I think that's just life in general, right? Mm -hmm. You can look at any situation. It can be both positive and negative Mm -hmm. on that, whether you want to look at it as positive or you want to look at it as negative, that's your choice on that. So when I saw guys getting called up that, you know, maybe internally I thought I was better, better than, or that my stuff played better than, because at that point, everyone's good, right? Don't get me wrong. Everyone has their own niche though. You know, I wasn't the, you know, hundred to one Oh two guy but I was 93, 97 with a lot of movement and it was a heavy ball. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, my role on that um, and where I had a lot of success in double a, I believe it was 2014 was almost like what we would call like a fireman role. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to push your starters to five, six or seven so they can get their innings. Um, and then all of a sudden in the sixth inning, it's like, Hey, they're on a pitch count of 15 and it's walk first guy double. Okay. He's done. Right. And then, I would come in and try to get them out of that inning, you know, with one out first and second or, you know, anything like that where I can come in and get a ground ball double play. Cause that was what my niche was. Mm-hmm. I can start you off with a breaking ball. You're probably not going to swing at it. And then if you're right-handed, I can, you know, down in on your feet to try to get you to spin off of one to hit it to shortstop or third base to get a ground ball. Mm-hmm. And so that's where my niche was. But now you start to look at the transition of the game as well. It was five innings for a starter. You had your sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth guy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes six and seven were the same guys. Sometimes your starter went six, so you only needed seven, eight, and nine. Mm-hmm. But there was no more area for that kind of fireman role per se on that. Yeah, And it was a very, very small niche on that. And to go back to your point, uh, 2014, I think I had my best statistical year. Um. Maybe not ERA, maybe not, you know, all of that, but just how I pitched. Mm 
mm-hmm. and how I commanded the strike zone. And when I came in, the confidence the team had around me that, hey, whatever jam we're in, he's got us. You know, yeah. and I think that has a lot to play with it too, right? Oh, We've sure. all been around guys where, you know, so-and-so comes in, you're like, man, I hope he throws strikes right. today. You know, or, or whatever. <laughs> like, we hope we get the good guy today, right? Yeah. And instead of on the flip side of that. And, and so um, I'm pushing to make the big leagues in 14. Um, and again, stuff out of my control. Uh, Kevin Towers, uh, who passed away, he was a great, great man. Um, he ended up getting let go, I think, at the like middle of August. And basically, from what I had heard, you know, just chatter around the clubhouse, I was going to be one of like the four guys on the team that was going up as a September call-up type deal. Mm-hmm. Whether that's true or not, who knows? But again, started to circulate. Um, Kevin Towers and his whole staff gets let go. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when Tony Larusa, Dave Stewart, and Dave Duncan come over. Yep. They don't call anyone up that year because they want to keep the 40-man options open on that. I went from big league camp to double A, and then I had, I think, a 2-3 or 2-5 ERA in double A and didn't get invited back to big league camp. Wow. wow. So instantly I knew like my time with the Diamondbacks is probably done. Right, but yeah. again, I'm still on that team. I still have an opportunity to play. So how do I separate that now, right? Yeah. I went to big league camp, which was probably too soon in my career. Had I earned it with the numbers I threw up? Absolutely. But skill-wise and development, that was way above where I was. It was a great learning opportunity for me because I got there and I was like, oh, I thought I was good, but I'm not. Like I need a lot. I got a lot to learn on this. And then not to get invited back after having a really good year um, in double A, especially double A is kind of the separator, right? You got rookie ball, you have low A and high A. That's the kind of development aspect of, of how to play 142 games, how to pitch three days in a row when you're sore and, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. When you get to double A, you've kind of made it per se, right? Like right. that's your separator. Absolutely. If you can do well in double A, like you can do well in the big leagues. Yep. And so I don't get invited back to big league camp. And again, negative thoughts, negative, like, what am I doing wrong? Like I, this, I should be there and all these things I can't control. Um, and so one thing I learned how to do, I gave myself 24 hours. So if I wanted to curse up a storm and let it all out, if I wanted to be angry, sad, mad, whatever it was, I gave myself 24 hours to feel those emotions and let them out and then go back to what I needed to do. That's the way that I dealt with all of that. So as we're going through spring training, I switched the way I pitched a little bit. I walked too many people. That was always my knock. I had, I think, a three-to-one strikeout-to-walk ratio. Again, isn't bad, right? But right, in right. pro ball, you're looking five, seven. You know, right. your, your elite yeah. starters are 15-to-1. So with me at three-to-one, I'm on the lower end. Right. But again, on the flip side of that, I led just about every league I played in in ground ball double plays. So if I fell behind 2-0, I'm not just going to throw a cookie down the middle and hope you hit it at someone. I have the opportunity to nibble a little bit more. And if I walk you, I have a higher chance of getting a ground ball double play. Again, that was my niche on that. Mm -hmm. So I go to spring training and I get hit around a little bit. Um, I'm changing the way I pitch, but I know that this is going to allow me one more command of the strike zone and more movement. So my velocity dropped a little bit in spring training, but I'm filling up the strike zone now. I'm not falling behind 2-0, 3-1 to guys anymore. On the flip side of that, I'm getting hit more because I'm in the zone more, right? So I got to learn how to pitch in the zone that way. Um, And comes a time where they start to send everyone off. And again, in my opinion, 
I surpassed double A that that previous year. Right. You know, it wasn't like I had a five and I struggled. Like I dominated in double A that year. Right. So your next progression is going to triple A. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the last day, the rosters come out and I'm going back to double A. Okay. You know, again, yeah. can't control it, right? Right. Am I going to sit here and just cry about what happened or am I going to figure, hey, let's go have a good month and get out of there basically was my mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll never forget this. I was one of two guys that I think repeated double A um, in the bullpen. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm talking strictly bullpen here. Right. And I think we had five guys that had just come up from uh, high A. So they had no experience whatsoever um, in double A. We're, uh, we're in Birmingham to start out the series against the White Sox. Mm-hmm. And I think we're uh, up like 10 to 1. And so the two veteran guys in the bullpen are like, hey, youngsters, get ready to go. Like six, seven, eight, nine. Like that's four opportunities for guys to go and get their feet wet in double A. Starter gets through six, bullpen rings. Hively has the rest of the game. And I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. yeah. Again, like I'm a one to two inning guy or come in and like close that inning, fill the gap to our seven, eight, nine guys or eight, and nine guys. Why am I going three innings right out mm-hmm. of the gate on this? Right. So I go out. I think I walk one, give up a hit, strike out two or three, just like my numbers would say <laughs> on that, right? You know, my, my whip is a, was roughly right around a one. So one hit, one walk and, you know, three strikeouts in an you know, in inning, whatever, or the three innings. And Robbie Hammock was our manager at the time. Um, awesome dude beyond smart in baseball and his experience behind the play, especially with Randy Johnson and the perfect game. Like yeah. just being around him was so cool. And I went into his office and I was like, Hey, his nickname was hammer. I was like, hammer. Like I've been around long enough. Like I, I what's going on. Right. And he just kind of looked at me and he goes, I get it. Just deal with it. like, that was it. He's right. like, just deal with yeah. it. Yeah. You know, the organization had different plans for other guys. Yeah. And I went from being a stud in that organization and making a name for myself being a ninth round pick mm-hmm. to basically I was back to being a 19th round pick with no name. Right. So well, how do you deal with that mentally? Yeah, now, right? yeah it's rough. <laughs> well, and you tough. bring up a, a, a so you bring up something that I think a lot of people will will benefit from or at least the understanding of this is that as a especially for a relief pitcher, when you're coming up through and you're going through that process, there's a difference between you almost from a mental skill standpoint, have to look at this as one of two ways is on the field, dealing with those mental challenges and off the field, because, you know, I always say relief pitchers, it's inherited stress, right? It's like, you're coming into a situation you didn't create, but you're still throwing stressful pitches because you're now in this situation with second and third with one out and you got to get out of this jam, you know, um, it, but it wasn't anything you did. So it sounds like you probably, if you had to go back and talk to yourself, would have, you, it seemed like you were probably working well with that on the field challenges, but it was the off the field, all of those things, like you said, that you can't control, you know, where they're placing you in the organizational mapping and everything else that was really became more of a challenge for you. 100%. And, you know, I started showing up a little bit later to the field. You know, I didn't want to be there as much. Yeah. You know, honestly, it, it was like, all right, I can go and instead of getting there at noon and getting, you know, a lot of working and having some rest in between, 
man, if I get there at one thirty, I can get all that done and just take less breaks on mm-hmm. that. Now it's an hour and a half less that I have to be there. Um, and that's probably what I would say is I, I should have stuck with my routine that I had on that. Um, cause again, at the end of the day, as much as you can say, Hey, just control what you can control, man, does, does it eat at you when you feel yeah, like you're absolutely. doing everything you possibly can. Um, and again, for me, it was to go and make a name for myself, right? Like everyone knows now that I played pro ball, but when I got drafted by them, like two people knew my name, right? Yeah, right. It wasn't like I was Archie Bradley, the first round pick who, you know, is now you know the number one prospect in the organization. I was just a dude that had an opportunity and got a plane flight out there to go and try to make something happen. And then I feel like I made my name for myself. And then the, uh, you know, what we call brass, the GM, the scouting directors and all of that. They're like, Hey, like we, we may have found some, something in this guy right here. And then they get let go and someone else comes in and now it's like, Oh, 19th round pick. Right. Doesn't matter. Basically, that's at least how it felt, right? Like, hey, it doesn't yeah. matter what you did previous. We got our guys coming in that, you know, maybe have been established in the big leagues and looking to get back. And it just, the whole organization flipped on, all right, we need to bring in some older guys so we can be more competitive there, mm-hmm. trade those guys away so we can get more prospects back in our farm system when they do well. And all of a sudden, you know, I felt like I was on this right track to get to the big leagues and make my childhood dream come true. And within, you know, six months, basically it was like, man, what am I doing right now? Yeah. And exactly. that was probably the hardest part of, of mentally trying to get over where I'd probably go back and tell me, dude, just keep doing what you were doing. Right. I was right. on the right track and yet I didn't believe where I was going because I hit such a big wall. There it was like, well, now I got to change. Now I got to see if I could be a starter. Right. And then, uh, that year, uh, with, with hammer and double a, um, I got called in at the all-star break and I think I had like a three or four ERA. It wasn't great again, probably because of, you know, my routine change and the mental stuff that I let affect me. And I was like, Oh, finally, like I got called into his office in my head. I'm going to AAA. We're like, we're making this move. And he calls two other guys in. He goes, Hey, you guys are going back down to high A. And I was just like, wait, what? Like, right. Not only two years ago, did I pass high A, right? I passed double A in a sense. And now I'm going back because you want mm-hmm. me to start. Like, why can't I start in double A? Right. I know how to pitch at double A. Right. And so it was just those constant roadblocks that you ran into where at one point you're like, what am I doing? Yeah. You know, and, and I went Do you- down and, you know, again, I, I gave myself 24 hours. It was a terrible drive from, you know, Mobile, Alabama to Visalia, California during the all-star break when we were supposed to be resting and having some fun. I had to drive across the country and I got there and basically I was told, Hey, get over it now. Like you got one day, get over it and be a mentor to these kids. And that's kind of when I knew at that point, I was like, I'm, yeah. I'm done with the diet. It doesn't yeah, really yeah. matter what I do. Right. I, I already know that I'm kind of done. And, um, yeah, I went to AAA at the end of the year and did pretty well. Um, I think I had one outing, like statistically, that that ruined my numbers where I gave up, I think, five or six and two or three innings. And mm-hmm. it just I didn't have enough innings to be able to to match that. Did, yep. Um, and then came back in spring training. Uh, I had 12 big league outings. I didn't give up a run. I gave up one hit. I walked one and struck out 14. <laughs> Dominant. And got released and never got picked back up. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Do you think that was the key, RJ, that this all of these experiences was that the catalyst for you to start 
saying, look, this is this is direction I want to go with my life is I want to start to get people in a better position from a mental standpoint to be able to conquer some of these challenges. Was that that catalyst for you? Absolutely. Uh, if you look back on my career, um, I think anyone that doesn't make it to the big leagues and isn't a Hall of Famer will always say they could have done better or it could have been you know, this or that. I try not to look at it that way. I try to look at how blessed I was for the opportunities I got. Sure. Um, but I went to Cal State Fullerton out of high school, top five baseball program. I wasn't ready for it. And it showed. I redshirted. I had some uh, back spasm issues my second year, but basically didn't prove my worth and got let go. So I had to you know, swallow the pride pill, go back to a JC um, in the same area, right? So I'm running into guys that I went to high school with and, oh, hey, how's Cal State? Oh, well, you know, uh, I lost that opportunity. I'm back at the JC, right? Like, again, the ego and the pride just getting hit on that. Sure. Um, but again, on the flip side of that, I never saw this coming. I got to go play at Ole Miss, you know, and like I would never yeah. change that for the world. Right. But again, I wasn't mentally ready for all of that. And even my first year at Ole Miss, you know, again, I had um, like elbow tendonitis at the very beginning of the year. Um, I felt it pop in, in my first outing and I just never fully recovered that year where I only had really one good year of college out of five. But without those four struggles or four years of struggle, one, I wouldn't have had the fifth year that I had. Mm -hmm. And secondly, I wouldn't have been able to handle the stresses of pro ball mentally without those struggles. So I'm really glad that I went through them looking back on it now. Right. Because I would have went into rookie ball in the first year and I would have been done. I hated it. It was terrible. But it was, no, I can get through this. I've done it before. I can do this. I can get through, you know, stick to the process, stick to the routines and build this thing out. And, you know, I think I was with the Diamondbacks for roughly four and a half years. And two of them were spent in double A, double A or triple A. And so that's where I feel like I separated myself again with my niche and my routine, my skill set. But it was the mental grind that I was able to get through on that. And, you know, the reason I started, you know, my own side business in this, it doesn't get taught until you get to college, Mm -hmm. right? Very rarely is it taught in high school. And I don't even think it's taught at a lower level than that. And when I started to give lessons, I gave lessons for fulfillment, right? We talked a little bit about this. Like I had, you know, a job that was nine to five, eight to five, and the paycheck was good, but I was going to bed every night, not having any type of fulfillment. Mm -hmm. It's like, man, I feel like I could do more, right? So I started to give lessons. Boom. That was the fulfillment, man. Seeing these kids. And I think the biggest thing was that I've been through it. So what they're feeling internally that they don't want to share with anyone, I can go, this is how you feel, huh? And boom, that whole burden is taken away from them. And it's basically like, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I yeah, know. Yeah. trust me. Yeah. I've been through it. I know those feelings. And then, Hey, this is how we get out of it. And so while I started to give those, and they, those were physical lessons, right? Trying to teach them how to pitch, how to use their lower body, how to not become so rotational with their upper body. They, they would grab onto that, but they don't have the reps yet. And they don't have the body control to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But it's setting the precedent for a foundation. So when they do grow into their body and all of a sudden they go from 5'3 to 6'3 and they get that man muscle and their velocity shoots up, how do they protect their arm now? Cause they're using their legs and they're protecting their arms in the way they throw, but they already know how to command the strike zone. So now you, you know, you go from 75 to 90 say, 
and I can control the strike zone, you're way ahead of the game on that, oh, right? Yeah. But then I'd get these kids that would come back and it's like, well, I, I, di- I, I, you know, I didn't walk anyone this time, but I gave up seven. Okay, well, how'd you handle that? Not well. Everything sped up. Hey, you know, all, all the mental stuff started to kick in. And then I'd get parents that would come like, hey, like mechanically he looks great. But like as soon as he gives up a hit, like he's gone. Okay, great. So now all of a sudden my physical lessons started to turn into mental lessons, right? They understood Mm -hmm. the foundation. They just needed the reps of it, right? So they're telling me now what they did wrong, which is, I think, the most beautiful thing when you can share that knowledge with them. And then on the flip side, they can come back and be like, hey, I pulled off with my upper body on that. I need to use my legs more. Great. Let's see. How do you make that change? Yeah. And then it went into like, what's your pre-pitch routine? Mm -hmm. I don't know. So now you're thinking on the mound. You got to, Hey, is that guy going to run? How, you know, what's my patterns when I hold, what's my time to the plate? You know, how do I execute a pitch? All of the, I like baseball IQ stuff right? and mental side of the game. That's when I'm like, Hey, this is where I, again, I could find my niche of what I want to do and, and help these kids out. And I think it's for me, like one of the coolest things when, when a kid comes back and he goes, you were right. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Simply because it's like I've been there and I know what's going to happen. And I have a ton of kids that have never pitched in the game before but want to. And so then I, I help them with their skill set to be able to have that happen. But then I go, hey, when you get out there, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be excited. You're going to be anxious. You're going to be nervous. And I said, your brain is going to start to spin at an uncontrollable rate. Step off the mound. I've had lessons where I've literally only worked on breathing and then have them throw. That's right. it. Oh yeah. That's great. And I love when, when the kids come back or I'll get emails from parents. Hey, Johnny's, you know, first inning or first batter wasn't very good. Couldn't find the strike zone. But the coolest part was remember two days ago when you worked on the breathing aspect with him, he stepped off the mound. He took two breaths. He struck out the side on 10 pitches after that. Nice. Like that is so cool to hear. It gives me, you know, goosebumps just yeah. talking about it. But that's like the development stuff that I love in this because they're at the very, very beginning of their journey. Mm-hmm. And I love where I'm at because it's all about development and trying to get these kids to play one more year. That's basically what they want. Hey, you get to high school and maybe your skill set's not there, but we can help you play one more year so you have that memory going forward. Sure. Or maybe you're really good in high school but you're kind of that fringe, maybe D3, D2 guy or lower level D1. You're not the top prospect per se, but you get an opportunity to go and play and get that experience. And that's what I love about where I'm at with with Diamond Club is it's so focused on development. Yes, they want to win, but they're not going to take, you know, hindering development to go win a a 10U championship or a 12U championship. And I think that's, you know, a little bit of what's taken away in the youth game right now is for us, we know what it's like to play in college Mm -hmm. and the feelings you get. And even now that we're done looking back on it and the sense of pride and fulfillment that comes go, I did that. Right. right. You know, I'm I'm part of that maybe one or 2% that did that. Right. Whether it was your dream school or not, but you got that opportunity to go play. And that's where I think we look at it, right? Like, hey, we want this for you. Whether Mm -hmm. you want to do it or not, That again, that's up to you. But I don't really care if my kids win a 10U championship. Right. And I try to tell their parents on this too, like, 
Honestly, I'd rather have Johnny go 0 for 40 and have the right swing and swing path of what he's doing because that's going to translate in two or three years. Again, when he hits puberty and he gets stronger and starts to learn and understand his body, you don't want him to peak at 10. Right. You know, and I have a lot of kids too who are bigger, stronger, and more skilled than, you know, their competition. You want to know how difficult it is to tell a 10 year old they're doing it wrong when they're batting 800. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. And we, and and you guys definitely know this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and it, and we talk about it, about not being results focused and, and, you know, I can't, I can't even tell you how many times this past season uh, with my son's 13 U team where you get that bad body all of a sudden and, you know, you go out to the mound and, and you go, Hey, what's, what's wrong? Well, you know, the guy just hit a double. And I said, you know, so your expectation today was to throw a no, no, like it, it, your, your expectation is to throw a no hitter every time you step on the mound. Hmm. We, we probably need to shift that a little bit. And, um, and same thing. I'm, I'm with you hundred percent, RJ. I love the fact of what you just said there of, you can even have those conversations with a kid, right? And go, hey, look, don't be don't be results oriented. Trust the process. Understand, like you said, you're going to grow into this skill set. And I think anybody that's been around long enough has 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 story after story of the kid that kind of hit that growth spurt in the fourth grade, fifth grade. Yep. And he never had the work ethic because he was always physically dominant. And then when the field got bigger and you push back to 66 and 90, and all of a sudden he's still five, seven and everybody else is caught up and he is not that kid. And, you know, he, but he doesn't have the work ethic to fall back on. Um, and the same thing with the parents and trying to get the parents to understand it's so difficult to get the parents to understand because to your point, what you said earlier about you don't care if a kid wins a 10 U championship. I know I don't, John doesn't because you understand the big picture. And if you, if you've been there before, you know, that it's, it's a grind. And and this isn't the end of the road. Like this is, this is just the beginning. Um, I think so many parents that have never experienced it and feel like they know what's best. Um, it's very, very difficult. And I know that, you know, kind of the pre-show stuff we talked about and you, you hit on it just a few minutes ago, they're not teaching at a young level. John, you've mentioned it in several podcasts before the importance of a parent to understand that you are your child's first mental coach. You are the first one that they're going to look to, you know, whether we as coaches like it or not, they're going to look in the stands. If, if mom or dad says something, then that's what they're going to do. They're, they, they have the override over, over the, the coach on the field. So uh, the well, importance and it's, of that. Also, Brandon, it's, it's one of the things I think that you were just alluding to there when you talk about that growth spurt or that talent gap that happens at that younger age. This we see also, RJ, when it comes to those um, kids that are operating in red light situations, right, where their mental skills are just so far out of whack from a letting emotions of the game take control, letting their thoughts take control. They can get 
through that if your talent is just better than everybody else in Little Correct. League. You can get through that in Babe Ruth. You can get through it in high school for that. I mean, if you deal, if you would have been one of those kids and throwing in the mid nineties when you were in high school, you're, it doesn't matter whether you're pissed off throwing on the mound or not, you're still going to be effective, Correct. but it's the ones that have to now um, come out later on when they get to college and the talent gap shrinks. And now all of a sudden everybody's on that same level. Now, all of a sudden, those are the ones that, that struggle. Right. And, and, you know, Brandon touched on it too. It's so hard to tell kids not to be result oriented mm-hmm. um, and be process oriented. You know, what can you control when you're out on the mound? Your mechanics. That's that's yeah. literally it. Once the ball leaves your hand, you have no control over it anymore. So when the umpire, you throw a ball right down the middle and the umpire calls it a ball, are you going to let that affect you? Or are you going to go back and go, hey, that wasn't as good of a pitch as I could have made right there. How do I make this better? Right. And I think when they get into that mindset of what they can control physically, it takes away from those negative thoughts that come in now of, hey, I just gave up a double. That was a bad pitch. Mm-hmm. Or I can't control that anyway. Let's go back to what I can focus on. Oh, I pulled off with my front shoulder on that just a little bit. So let's use my legs a little bit more. And so now you get into a mechanical thinking and I like to tell my kids, Hey, when we're off the mound, we're scientists. Think about what I need to do here. I need to use my legs a little bit more, what the situation is. And then when I step on the mound, I become an athlete. I don't think anymore. I react. Right. And I think that's why the the pre-pitch routine is so important because I feel like a lot of kids, they just rush, right? They rush, they rush, they rush. And so they get on the mound after they've given up a double and they're still pissed off that they gave that double up and they're not trying to fix mechanically what happened on that pitch. And that leads to another double because they left the ball up there. Right. And, and you're talking about like, hey, you know, Johnny could get away with it right now at 12 or 14. That's not going to happen in two or three years. Yeah. You know, guys right. are going to be able to catch up to how hard absolutely on that. And, and the other thing that, that you know, I'll, I'll touch on two things. One, the velocity aspect of kids drives me nuts. Because again, you're, you're trying to get velocity out of a 10 to 14 year old that hasn't hit puberty yet. That's it's right. not going to happen. Teach them how to throw correctly so they, they save their arm and use their legs. The velocity will come. Let's have that conversation when he's 16, 17, 18. And all of a sudden now it's like, hey, you know, we're getting some looks from colleges or scouts, but you know, he's only 82 to 85. How can we get three or four more miles an hour? Okay. Right. Now that he's, developed per se now can start to do some things to work on Mm -hmm. the aspect of um of velocity and then the last thing i'll touch on too i think parents that haven't been through sports and and don't understand it and let's say in an aspect we'll go non-athletic to athletic right we were athletic we probably struggled a little bit more in school than we did in athletics And on the flip side of that, probably 90% of parents did really well in school, but struggled with athletics, right? Mm -hmm. So now that they have a kid who's athletic or in athletics, I personally think just from what I've seen, parents look at at athletics as school. So if little Johnny doesn't go out and have an A or B performance, Mm -hmm. he gets in trouble in athletics Hmm. or why didn't you do this, right? right? If you look at what school is and an I wish my parents would have taught me this at a younger age because it was like, you need to get A's and B's, like C's, D's, and F's are unacceptable, which again is 100% true. 
but what is the grade telling you? Absolutely. What that you memorize the information for that time, or is it teaching you how to go and study for a test when you're struggling, how to map out your week when you know you have a test on Friday that Monday, I need 10 minutes, Tuesday, I need 20 minutes, Wednesday, I need 30 minutes and uh, Thursday, I need 10 more minutes to review. So I'm confident when I go into that test Yeah, because that's what sports teaches us. What's your pregame routine? Do you just show up and go? Or right. do you get there? Do you take five minutes to yourself and work on your breath, slow your heart rate down, and get into an athletic mindset mm-hmm. in the progression aspect, right? The grade tells you what you know, mm-hmm. not the process of how you got there, basically. Right. So when it's a measurement. Parents, right. And so when the parents think of it as school and little Johnny goes, oh, for four, I don't care that he went over. I want to see what his swing looks like. Right. Because there's going to be a disconnect on, hey, he went over four, but he lined out to the shortstop four times in a row. His swing looks great. And and he's got nothing to work on. And somebody else made it went four for four with four bloops and one dribbler that nobody made a play on. Well, and here's the thing, too, is school is is very is is a much more controllable environment. You, You you don't have a teacher that all of a sudden is throwing questions at you that you didn't get to study for, right? <laughs> I mean, you you yeah. get to kind of know what's on the test. And and I can tell you as a hitter, it, it's just like it, you can look at the batting averages of a 3-1 count versus 2-1. If I yeah. know where where I'm looking, I a little more control goes a long way. Right? Absolutely. And so so I love that analogy, though, where – the lack of understanding and, and, and the ignorance of, of the outside influences that impact the result. And that's why I, I love the fact that it just can't be results driven all the time. And as a competitor, and John and I talk about this a lot, RJ, that doesn't mean you don't care if you win or lose, mm-hmm. right? right? That doesn't mean that you don't strive for greatness. It just means understand that sometimes you can do everything that you can do the right way and not get the result. And it's on the, the converse, right? Yeah, it's, the, it's, it. yeah no, it, it's, it's the old Winston Churchill deserve victory. It's why it's been my mantra forever is, you, you know, I can't guarantee I will be victorious, but I will deserve victory. I will do, to bring in this point, everything that you possibly can to to make sure that you're getting that outcome you're seeking, but, you know, you can't control it. The, the other thing I think that I really want the listeners to hear, because you just unloaded and unpacked a really big thing that's making me now think about how conditioned we are with young players and young students, even with these freaking bumper stickers that are like, my son's an A student at whatever, you know, it's like, I almost like in a perfect world, I'd almost love to see my son has great study habits. Like my son has a great routine. Like my son will look you in the eye and shake your hand. (laughs) Right. right, Yeah. He listens when he's spoken to. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I do think that there you're onto something with this because it is um, it's that goes back to, we reward the behaviors we wish to see repeated. And if we're constantly talking about things from a, you know, my son's an A student and you're so spot on with that. So, so spot on with that, which by the way, is also why I hope, and I, I heard you talk about this on a, on another 
it, I don't know if it was a podcast, but it was definitely on YouTube where you were saying one of the things you'd like to do with JW5, and I want to get into JW5 here in a second, is um, do some children's books because I, I, I mean, I, when I was listening, I was like scribbling that idea down. Cause I was like, man, that's so good. Um, because if we can get that early on and it just becomes part of that second nature learning that that's going to be, we're onto something there. No, 100%. And, you know, it goes into, you know, the mental training performance training at a younger age. Look, let's be real. They're not going to uh, retain all this information. But it's the mm-hmm. cognitive aspect of them hearing it before, where just like when I talked about how, you know, one of my students, you know, walked the first guy, couldn't find the strike zone and takes two breaths. It's the first time he's ever pitched. He doesn't even know what he's doing. Right. But I told him that this will help him at one point. I only told him once and we worked on it for 10 minutes. But because I had talked and touched on that subject, all of a sudden, when you get out there and your brain speeds up, you go, hey, wait. I heard this once. So if we can start that at a younger age in this book, you know, my, my thought is like, you know, little Johnny's watching the TV with his friends and, you know, for the sake of baseball, Mike Trout's up with bases loaded and hits a game winning grand slam, right? Walk off grand slam. The kids go crazy. And then you fast forward two days later and little Johnny's in this same situation, bases loaded game on the line and he strikes out. No one wants to read a book about a kid failing, right? Right. But then the message goes into their walk, you know, him and his friends are walking home and they they walk into Mike Trout. And they're so excited, but little Johnny's still down because he's holding on to that at bat. And then to have his hero go, hey, little Johnny, the reason I can succeed in those you know, aspects is because of, and then we can touch on A, B, and C, my habits, my work ethic, my routine, whatever it may be or the fact that I've failed countless times in my career. Mm-hmm. Now I'm ready for that moment. And all of a sudden, you know, you're reading this to a seven, eight year old. They don't know what's going on. Right. They just know yeah. that little Johnny failed, but then the repetition kicks in. Cause now the next chapter or the next book on it runs through the same thing. Yep. And so then when they get older, when they're 10, 12, 14, and they can process things a little bit better, it's like, Hey, I go back and read that book. He succeeds not because he's so good. It's because of the work he put in. Right. And he the kept trying. He has and the habits he has and the development that comes with it. That's where my mindset went with, with where I wanted to go with these books is to focus on, hey, you're you're going to fail. It's a game of right? failure, you know, like Brandon said. And, and it's funny, RJ um, and Brandon will shake his head when I even start this story. But. I tell hitters all the time about Pete Rose and I always say, so the reason I say that is because Pete Rose is like my childhood hero, everything. And I always say, you know, baseball is a statistical game. And if you want to argue all you want about who's the greatest hitter of all time or whatever, you can get into those arguments. But statistically in our game, Pete Rose has 4,256 hits. But what people don't realize is he also has the most career outs. He has 10,327. So if you think of it as if our out, if we're wanting to be outcomes focused, then in the same breath that you're talking about, Pete Rose is the greatest hitter of all time at 4,256. Then that same youthful mind has to also register the fact that, well, he also had in what we consider in baseball failure as an out, he has more of those than anybody else as a hitter. So where do we go now? You know? 
Hey, oh, RJ, do you think he's ever made that argument before? Because I, I don't – just for the listeners at home, when he rattled off that uh, algebraic equation, he wasn't looking at paper. <laughs> he wasn't, no. He, he's got it memorized. I, he, he, got, he got that little just glaze oh, over his eyes and just – He was yep, just like, oh, number 14, <laughs> you know, sliding into third, looking like one of the three stooges. I had I, I had to change my uh, I, I had to get take off my Pete Rose jersey just to make that that analogy, but no, it, it is true. I, it, it's so great, and I love you know what you're doing with JW Five. Do um, you have the four principles, and, and everybody can get online. What it's JW Five Pro dot com is that yes, the, the website? So everyone listening to this, get online um, and. What a great story behind it. Yeah. Tell everybody how you you came up with the name JW5 because I think it's outstanding. Oh, I, I appreciate that and, and, and knowing where it came from. Um, I've always wanted to, to run my own company, whether that was full-time, part-time, whatever it was. Um, and I had a childhood best friend, uh, kindergarten through high school. Um, honestly, we didn't even become friends, friends until high school. Cause us two were the best athletes. So, uh, we were always pinned against each other. Um, and I think that's what led to our friendship, you know, towards the end when we got a little bit older, where we pushed each other so much skill wise, when it came to sports, I was probably a little bit better than he was, mm-hmm. but athleticism and quickness in running, he absolutely would run circles around me. So I was always trying to push myself to match him in that aspect and vice versa. He was always watching me and asking me questions on skill set. You know, how to shoot a basketball, how to be able to repeat that, how to you know, repeat your swing and all that's what I was, I was good at. And, and so we always battled against each other. You know, this, the, the, the kid that I had my first sleepover with, um, you know, when, when we got to college, we, we actually lived together in college as well. Um, like our first drink together, right? Like all your childhood first along the way, like it was with James um, and he passed away suddenly in 2010, um, a, a freak accident where we don't really know exactly what happened other than um, he got knocked out and fell face first into a bed of water mm-hmm. um, and ended up drowning while he was unconscious. Um, that was basically what we were told. Uh, he went missing for a couple of days until he was found. Um, and his parents, unfortunately, or fortunately, one or the other, whichever way you want to look at this, had just relocated up to Denver, Colorado. So they had to come back into town for this, you know, just a big mess of everything going on. Um, and we were teammates at the time at the junior college as well. Um, you know, and I, I talk about this with Tim Matz because he was our pitching coach. Like how we even got through that time and played that season with that is like looking back on it now, I have no idea. Um, but his name was James Wernke uh, and his favorite number was five. And so when I had the opportunity to create my own company, um, I wanted to do it in honor of him. He was a great baseball player, left-handed pitcher that was going to uh, the University of Long Beach to go and play collegiately before this uh, tragic accident happened. Um, and one thing that that we always talked about, you know, he was at the junior college when I was at Cal State Fullerton. And I was fortunate enough, I got to work um, and learn from Dr. Ken Revisa. Um, who's like the godfather when you were at Cal state. Yes. Yeah. And so, man, every time I worked with him, uh, when we worked with him as a team, I'd come home and and James and I would sit there and we would just talk about Leo, what I learned. He wanted to learn so much about it. Um, 
And so I figured what better way with what I want to get into, into being able to honor him. So, uh, you know, part of the reason why I'm here in Denver, uh, and I don't tell people this right off the bat, usually when they, Oh, what, you know, brought you to Denver. Right. On this. Um, but I remember in 2010, my dad and I came up here for the burial, you know, his parents obviously wanted him close. Um, and I loved Rocky uh, Coors Field, Rocky, Rocky yeah. Stadium on mm-hmm. that. And so we flew in, and my dad and I went and took a tour of um, Coors Field, which was really cool. And I'll never forget, I'm standing out front. We had just finished the tour, um, and it had uh, snowed like two days before. So there's a little bit of snow on the ground, um, crystal clear view of the mountains looking down, the brick of downtown. It was absolutely incredible. And I just remember looking at my dad and going, this is where I want to live. And he's yeah. like, really? Really? And I go, yeah, it's just something about this place that feels like home. Mm. You know, I loved growing up in California. I feel like I'm, I'm beyond fortunate for that. Um, but yeah, it was weird. Like I wanted to be close to him. I felt like this was home. I had no idea. I mean, at that time I was at the junior college. I didn't even know I was going to Ole Miss. Um, and the fact that I was even going to play pro ball. But then I went to Ole Miss uh, and my best friend from college played football um, and he played for the Broncos for a couple of years, both on the squad and practice squad um, and met his wife out here. So they live down in Castle Rock, which is about 40 minutes or so for where I'm at. And then about five years ago, my oldest sister moved out here as well while I was still playing. So I was like, All look, right. as soon as I'm done, I am yeah. out here. Um, you know, and those are people that, you know, I want to grow old with and, and have those memories growing up, um, you know, growing on. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, at the end of the day, like there's so much in this world we can't control. Um, and I think that's what I love about perform. I I call it performance coaching training, but it is, it's all mental, you know, at the end of the day that again, there's so much we can't control that we hold on to because we want to get the outcome that we want on that instead of looking at it and go, Hey, what is this teaching me? How -hmm. can I learn from it? And then move on. Yeah. And yeah. that's what I want to do in my trainings. Um, and that's why I have the four different aspects. So I have the athlete, I have the coaches, I have the parents, and then I have business individuals on that. Yeah. I um, loved, I love the breakdown that you have in the four components, because that's one of the things Brandon and I talk a lot about on this show. And the reason we came up with the mental advantage podcast was to try and give people a window into those systems and strategies that are going to make them better and kind of close that gap from where they are to where they want to be. A question I was thinking about for you, because I know you deal with a lot of youth athletes. Is there anything that you think that um, the younger players that you wish the younger players could teach the older folks that you deal with? What's a skill set you think younger people have that you wish was transferable to the older clients that you have? Specifically talking about a youth athlete and their parents, stop putting so much pressure on them. They put mm. enough pressure on themselves to perform yeah. that at the end of the day, they just want to make you happy with their performance. They could care less, in my opinion, and from what I've heard, how they do. Right. But they're excited when they go four for four because of the reaction they get from their coaches, uh, their teammates, and their parents. That's true. And so That's a, a lot point. of what I try to tell my parents on that is switch the way that you talk to your child and talk to them as an athlete. Hey, you went four for four today, but was your swing really that good? And again, I know it sounds so negative, 
But think about the development aspect from that right there. Mm-hmm. Right. No, you're right. Like I was out in front and I got four flares today. It wasn't great. I'm glad I got the results I did, right? Because that helps build confidence. Mm-hmm. But you're right. There's a lot more work I need to do. And yeah. then on the flip side of that, when little Johnny goes 0 for 4 and you can go, hey, I know you went 0 for 4, but man, your swing looks great. Your timing's good. You're hitting the ball hard. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep working on that and the results will come instead of, oh, bumper sticker, right? Little Johnny went 4 for 4 today. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's so true. And, and, and I'm glad that you're because then it goes back to what we talked about earlier is they have an opportunity as a parent to debrief and teach that idea of self-assessment and understanding that it's not that result. Like, let's talk about what you did that allowed you to get some of those results. And really on the way to the game is ask that player, what's your goal for the day? And if you find out that that goal is more results focused, then make sure that they change it to something behavioral that they can, that they can truly control that day. Maybe it's be the best teammate that day, or maybe it's bringing the most energy on the field that day. Maybe it's just really just as a hitter, just seeing the ball on the barrel when you're making contact today, like whatever it is, make it something that's truly attainable and that they can control versus some results. If you hear that player, son of or daughter of yours say, I want to go three for three, stop right. that right away. Get them out of that results mindset because you're going to be better off in the long run. You um, said something um, in one of your shows or on social media or something. I, I really wanted you to unpack for a minute and we're going to wrap this up because I know we've kept you plenty long. Um, selfishly unselfish. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, but selfishly unselfish. Talk to me a little bit about that. I love that terminology. Where, where did you come up with that? Honestly, it's just from everything I've gone through, um, good, bad, or indifferent. I think selfishness has such a negative connotation to it. Um, and it can be right. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side of that, we all have the same 24 hours in the day. However, I choose to use it is on me. That's the selfishness that comes into that. Um, And and in one of the programs I built, it it focuses on how can I selfishly be the best version of myself day in and day out? Because on the flip side of that, when someone else needs me, coworker, teammate, family member, spouse, husband, wife, whatever it is, how can I be the best version of myself for them? if I'm not the best version for myself. And then if you want to talk athletically on that, if I'm a pitcher, I got seven guys behind me that are counting on me and one guy in front of me that's living and dying every pitch with me. So if I'm not selfish in my preparation and getting ready for that game, I'm being selfish in that aspect to my teammates. So selfishly, maybe I need to go and I need to run a little bit more and get in better shape so I can go longer so my bullpen doesn't have to come in after four innings. So selfishly, I'm going to be unselfish in my actions on that. And that's kind of where it came from is, hey, at the end of the day, again, I'm not married. Um, I was fortunate enough both my parents are still together and have been for for quite some time. Um, At the end of the day, we only have ourselves, truly right? Yes. You may share a life with someone on that, 
And I truly believe at the end of the day, your happiness depends on you, not someone else. Can they enhance their lives and help you out? Absolutely. But your true happiness comes from yourself. So if you're not taking care of that and being happy with who you are and where you're at with life, how are you supposed to help enhance their lives in that partnership? And that's, again, either relationships, business, sports, whatever it may be. It's all the same. So at the end of the day, if I want to wake up at nine o'clock every day and go to bed at six o'clock, I get to choose to do that. Right. But how can I be the best version of myself? I've tried not working out in the mornings. I'm terrible throughout the rest of the day. It is a fog over everything I do and feels like I'm carrying a refrigerator around every time I move. But if I go and get 20 minutes of uh, just shooting basketballs at the gym or swimming or whatever it is, all day I'm on top of what I need to do. So now when I go to lessons at three o'clock today, I'm the best version of myself for those kids that day. Yeah. Whether they like me or not in the way I'm teaching, at least I'm there and I'm the best version of myself, right? I don't roll in and go, I'm a little bit tired today, (laughs) right? Right. Right. I'm a little bit hungover today. Sorry, I got a headache. Just go ahead and throw and, and do what you need to do. And again, I feel like, and this is what baseball taught me, every day is an interview. Right. I may have some kid come in that I've never worked with before, and their dad may be the CEO of Billion Dollar Company. Yep. But they see the way I work and the way I teach. And he goes, hey, I really like what you do on that. I'd love for you to come in and work with with our company. I Again, I have no idea. Yeah. Right? But at the end of the day, if I'm not bringing the best version of myself day in and day out, one, I feel like I'm doing an injustice to everyone I come in contact with. And I think on a deeper level, I feel like I'm letting myself down. Yeah. And so no, selfishly, I'm going to figure out how I need to be the best I can. Hey, you know, John, I'm really sorry. I can't go out and drink with you tonight. No offense. I got some right. stuff I got to take care of tomorrow. Yeah. I may have hurt your feelings on that or let you down. And that's the selfish part that kicks in. But unselfishly, that's going to lead me to have a more productive day tomorrow. Hey, yeah. I'd love to reschedule on, you know, on a Friday night. I don't got anything going on Saturday. Let's go and do it then, right? Again, selfishly aspect of it. But on the flip turn of that, it's unselfish because I know what I got to do for the next day and make sure that I'm the best version of myself. So that's kind of it's, where it came from. It's awesome. And you're, you, you definitely demonstrate that discipline to be that servant leader that you are. And man, I can't thank you enough for joining us. And I have to say that I'm sure James is just so proud of what you're doing with <laughs> JW5. I mean, I it's, appreciate that. it's a really, really cool thing. Um, and this won't be your first appearance on this show. We, we, I, I'm sitting well, here looking be at a first, list of other things. It won't things. be his last. I mean, last. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he doesn't, well, he doesn't hey, have a been, choice. Look, he, it hasn't he been published yet. It we, is we, his we, first, we, but it won't be his last. <laughs> well, we, we might. That. We might have just, uh, we might not publish it. You never know. You know, hey, it's, listen, it's, meat and potatoes all day. <laughs> that's right. Meat, meat and, and potatoes. potatoes. Meat You're going to use that today, just subliminally, that'll, that'll pop into one of your conversations. <laughs> well, RJ, it's been a pleasure. We really enjoy you taking the time, uh, and, and we're thankful for you taking the time. So thanks for joining us, and we'll definitely be getting you back on sometime soon. No, I appreciate it. Thank you guys. And, and, you know, I know we kind of do the same thing on that, but I I love the fact when it comes from different voices, I can say the same thing and someone may not understand it. And you guys can say the same thing and someone kicks in. Um, So I I obviously love what you guys are doing and, and fortunate for the opportunity to come on. So thank you again.
No, awesome. We Fantastic. That. Want to provide feedback or stay up to date with the show? Visit our Instagram page at Mental Advantage Podcast, or you can send us an email at podcast at mentaladvantage.net. To have John Cullen work with you or your team, please write to him at john.cullen at mentaladvantage.net. Thanks for listening to today's episode.